0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Women reaching menopause can experience a wide range of changes, including physical changes to the genitourinary system, the genitals, and urinary tract.
2: A recent article in Mayo Clinic Proceedings reviewed the options for women experiencing genitourinary syndrome of menopause, a relatively new term that describes various menopausal symptoms and signs associated with physical changes of the vulva, vagina, and lower urinary tract.
1: On today's program, we'll learn about genitourinary syndrome and other menopausal changes from a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, we'll cover the latest changes to blood pressure guidelines which affect millions of Americans.
1: And tips for winter safety and avoiding Holiday hazards.
2: All that along with this week's Health and Medical News right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: It's a common problem that it affects at least fifty percent of postmenopausal women. Yet only about seven percent are receiving treatment. We're referring to a condition called genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. It's a term that used to be called atrophic vaginitis atrophic referring to atrophy or shrinkage of the vagina, vaginitis, I don't exactly know why they added the itis, which usually means inflammation, but probably just as well that we got rid of that term. Symptoms of GSM can include vaginal dryness, itching, painful intercourse, and genitourinary syndrome increases the risk of urinary tract infections, all the result of low levels of estrogen that go along with menopause.
2: Hmm. The good news is there are treatments that can help if you're willing to talk to your provider about it. That's critical. Yeah. Here to discuss is the director of the Mayo Clinic Office of Women's Health, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Welcome back to the program, Dr.
3: Fabian. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here,
1: Dr. Fabian. Nice to have you on the program again. So they, I think that the name change is is interesting, from atrophic vaginitis to genitourinary urinary syndrome of menopause. I guess the name change was good, but why? What prompted the, your society and women's health experts to do that?
3: Well, there were a number of factors that played into that, and one important one was that women didn't associate the condition with menopause. And so it was sort of unclear why these symptoms were happening, and therefore women weren't going to their doctors saying... You know, this is happening to me. Can we do something about it? So it wasn't really associated with menopause was one. The second was the term atrophic vaginitis doesn't have anything to do with the urinary tract. So societies were trying to pull in the urinary symptoms like the urinary frequency, going to the bathroom more often, the urgency and the urge leak, which are all symptoms of the same thing, low estrogen. And so tying in that for both providers and for women was helpful. And the third was, as you mentioned, atrophy means shrinkage and no one wants to think of their genitals as shrinking. Um, So much like the term impotence went to erectile dysfunction, we're now taking away that more pejorative term and making it something that women and providers can understand and that's more acceptable.
2: And just saying GSM, somebody might be less afraid to say to their doctor, I think I have GSM.
3: Uh, Yeah, it's a little more hip than atrophic vaginitis.
2: (laughs) What age are women when they usually
3: experience their first GSM? Well, this is typically menopausal women, so most of the time women are around the average age of 51 when they go through menopause, and typically it doesn't start immediately after that last menstrual cycle. It sometimes takes one to two years for those symptoms to develop. So whereas hot flashes and night sweats tend to start even in the years before the last menstrual cycle, these symptoms tend to come on a year or two after the last menstrual period.
1: I think one of the important things that your article pointed out or emphasized was that this is an underdiagnosed condition.
3: It is incredibly underdiagnosed. So as we were talking about, there are some 50 to 60 percent of postmenopausal women who are affected by that, by this condition, yet only about 7 percent actually receive treatment. So think about how many women are actually experiencing these symptoms but the majority of time they don't bring it up with their providers they don't associate it with a menopausal transition they think it's a natural part of aging they don't think anything can be done about it and frankly they're embarrassed to bring it up with their providers but on the provider side Providers aren't really educated about these things, uh, and a lot of times they are embarrassed to bring up these topics with women, and so there's sort of a disconnect uh, in the middle there where women aren't getting treated.
2: Which is the bigger problem, that women are afraid to ask or doctors are afraid to bring it up?
3: I I think they're equal. Actually, studies have shown uh, that women would prefer that their provider bring it up. Um, But providers are uncomfortable, and they feel like they don't know what to do with the topic, and they're embarrassed to talk about sex. And so it just is kind of the elephant in the room.
1: Do these uh, symptoms that that you've talked about uh, resolve over time? Do they get better over time without treatment or no?
3: Well, here's the tough part. So hot flashes and night sweats, even though they may last for a long time, they do typically get better with time, whereas these symptoms of GSM just get worse over time.
1: So that's the vaginal uh, dryness and the, the urinary problems.
3: The vaginal dryness, the pain with sex, the urinary problems, yes. And so... It's important to not just tie this with a sexual activity, with pain, with sex, because women can often be uncomfortable just sitting or wearing jeans or getting on a bicycle or wiping after they urinate. This can be incredibly uncomfortable. So it's not just about sex, their sex lives. How do you make the diagnosis? Well, it can be just by history and knowing the patient's age. We do encourage providers to at least do an examination because there are some other things that can be mistaken for these same symptoms. Uh, Some uh, conditions like lichen sclerosis. Can be mistaken for these symptoms. Lichen
1: sclerosis.
3: Mm hmm. Vulvar lichen sclerosis. It's a a condition uh, that's inflammatory and and probably autoimmune in nature. But we don't want to. rare, though. It's rare, but we don't want to miss these things. Uh, So I, I would encourage providers and women to have an exam just to figure it out. But yes, for the most part, you can pretty much nail it on the head by saying you're a woman of a certain age and you're having these symptoms, and it's most likely GSM. Okay, so now that we've uh, set the Establish table here,
1: the
2: how can we help? How can, What what treatment options are there for women who are dealing with GSM or just joining the journey towards menopause? What, what can we do?
3: So the good news is there are lots of things that we can do about this, and this starts with just using some over-the-counter products uh, to begin with and Lubricant moisturizer 101 education here. So moisturizers are like face cream for the vagina, and they can be used every day, every other day on a regular basis to help lock in moisture. Um, And just like you would get up and take a shower and put on your lotion, it's the same type of thing. So a moisturizer. Um, The others are lubricants, and those are used as needed for sexual activity. So if those two in combination are not doing the trick, then we have prescription therapies that are available. And most... Most of those are based around hormonal treatments the most common and most well-known is low-dose vaginal estrogen and it's available in creams ring and tablet all that go in the vagina very effective very low dose and with very little concern about any long-term effects
2: what about the urinary symptoms of people you know if they're leaking what are the different does that help with that symptom
3: it helps with the urinary frequency, urgency, and urge leak. So vaginal yes. estrogen will not help with the stress incontinence, which is cough, sneeze leak. That is more due to relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles and, and that sort of thing. So estrogen is not going to fix that. But estrogen will often take care of that urgency and urge leak.
1: All right, we're talking with Dr. Stephanie Fabian, who is director of the Mayo Clinic Office of Women's Health. We're talking about genitourinary syndrome. of Menopause used to be known as atrophic vaginitis. Time for a short break. But when we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact.
2: Ooh, and it is ripped from the headlines. (laughs) Women should take hormone therapy to prevent heart disease.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. We're back talking about menopause and the genitourinary syndrome of menopause with a Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Myth or matter of fact, Tracy?
2: Well, it's ripped from the headlines, from this week's headlines, as a matter of fact. Women should take hormone
3: therapy to prevent heart disease. Is that a myth or a fact? Oh Well, so the recent headlines would say no, that is not true, although I would contend that there is still plenty of data out there that would support that systemic hormone therapy does reduce heart disease risk for women, especially for those who are newly menopausal and within about 10 years of the menopause transition. So we definitely have a controversy out there. Well,
2: just last month, Dr. Kapoor was here and said, oh, we've changed it around
3: the the data do support the mm-hmm. fact that there there are good things about hormone therapy, especially for women in their 50s, and I know the United States Preventative Services Task Force really doesn't believe that, but I think we are moving back around toward that direction, even if we're not outright recommending it as a preventive strategy. Women who are taking hormone therapy for bothersome menopausal symptoms in their 50s will definitely get some added benefits, including bone protection and heart protection. Well, but... But
1: we stopped recommending, or you women's health experts stopped recommending um, hormone therapy for postmenopausal women because I thought it didn't have any effect on heart disease or it increased your risk for heart disease. Um, we knew it did something for bone health, but the other issue was it increased the risk for breast cancer.
3: So this is all very complicated, but it comes down to What kind of hormone therapy are we talking about? How old is the woman? And how far away from the menopause transition is she? So when the Women's Health Initiative study came out in 2002 and said hormone therapy is bad, they were lumping all women together and all hormone therapy types and regimens together. And so when you averaged it out, the the average woman in the Women's Health Initiative was 63 And that's not the woman we put on hormone therapy. That's not the woman who comes to our office complaining of hot flashes and night sweats. And when they ultimately teased out that data between the women who were 50s and the women who were 60s and the women who were in their 70s, the story becomes much more clear. So for starting women on hormone therapy for the first time in their 70s, there's more heart attacks and strokes. This is not surprising. These women already have some heart disease or vascular disease that's, beginning, and putting hormone therapy on top of that might increase their risk. For women in their 60s, the risk was more neutral, and for women in their 50s, there was actually some benefit. Hmm. So additional studies since that time have confirmed that, and in fact, observational studies before that time also support that. So we have plenty of data to suggest that heart disease risk is lowered in women who are on hormone therapy in their 50s.
1: If you start a woman postmenopausal woman on hormone replacement therapy uh, do you try to use the lowest dose possible and then is it forever or do at some point in time do you stop it
3: Well, that's a great question. So we have moved beyond the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time. And we, and the reason for that was that providers were constantly trying to take women off and underdose them. And so now we just say it's the appropriate dose, the appropriate route of administration for that particular woman. And we're not timing it on any number of years or age. We are timing it based on the woman's needs. So this is an individualized discussion with every woman, uh, based on her medical history, based on her family history, based on her symptoms, and based on personal preferences. Has
1: it always been true that hormone replacement therapy, and everybody has agreed that one thing hormone replacement therapy does is improve bone health and help prevent osteoporosis?
3: I think there's no question about the bone benefits for hormone therapy. I think the bigger controversial issue is the breast cancer risk, and that differs between whether or not a woman is on estrogen plus a progestogen, so that means a woman with a uterus, or whether a woman is on estrogen alone, she's had a hysterectomy. And the breast cancer risk is not increased in women on estrogen alone. In fact, the trend, especially the, the longer follow-up, shows a decreased risk of breast cancer in those women. But the risk of breast cancer may be increased in women who are on a progestogen after about three to five years of use. And in general, it's a very small risk. It's an average of about eight to nine extra cases per 10,000 women per year after five years of use. Pretty minimal. It's pretty minimal.
1: Anything else you want to ask about the hormone replacement therapy before we go back to GSM?
2: I try to look on the bright side of these things, and because I am getting to that special time of life, (laughs) Uh, it's probably fair to say there's never been a better time to be a woman going into menopause than right now because there's places like the Women's Health Clinic. Uh, Medicine seems to be recognizing that this is something important that affects women's quality of life.
3: It affects women in so many ways, and it's not just about the hot flashes and the night sweats anymore. And even a bigger picture, we're coming to understand that hot flashes and night sweats are not always benign, and they may actually portend cardiovascular risk. So we are understanding that estrogen affects every cell and every tissue in our bodies, and it's not just about the hot flashes and the night sweats.
1: So there's a couple of other uh Treatments for genitourinary syndrome that I wanted to ask you about that you, you talk about in your article and one was pelvic floor physical therapy. Uh, are there some women who need that? What's involved and how does it
4: help?
3: So pelvic floor physical therapy would be uh, something that we might use for women who have pain associated with intercourse. And so in addition to getting those vaginal tissues healthier again with vaginal estrogen or there's some other products, a new DHEA product has recently been approved by the FDA. So in addition to getting the tissues healthier, sometimes women have very tight muscles um, because they've been used to having painful sex. And so sometimes a physical therapist to help relax those muscles is is very helpful.
1: What about laser treatments? I saw that in your in your article what? and hadn't heard of that before. Laser. <laughs> laser on Hold the on. genitals. I so guess.
3: there's some very interesting data that's coming out recently, and I, I know a lot of your audience will probably have heard of this, but um, <clears throat> much like lasers for uh, facial um, uh, uses, they've come up with a laser for you improving. You mean like for wrinkles? Yes. Laser for wrinkles. Exactly. Yeah, for wrinkles. improving vaginal health. And what it does is it creates very tiny little wounds in the vagina. And that causes a uh, uh, healing process, which thickens the tissues up again. And so, while there are short term data, we have about three month data on this that shows that it works. What we don't have yet are the long term studies to show us that it's safe. And so, I think this is new and emerging, but um, the, the jury's still out on the long term safety of this.
1: It, far from a gold standard of treatment of th- this particular problem.
3: Far from it.
2: <laughs> because you were so kind when I sent you a message and said, do you have uh, menopause psychiatrists in the women's health clinic? (laughs) You said, well, technically, I suppose that we do. I feel like I need to in kind say there are also emotional issues that come along with both going through menopause and certainly dealing with GSM.
3: Uh, You make a great point. And women who have never had a single um, problem with anxiety or depression, can have issues at menopause, but especially those who have maybe had some postpartum baby blues or had PMS mood issues um, during their lives, those women are more likely to struggle with mood during menopause, and that is a key issue. Um, It's treatable. Sometimes even estrogen alone will help make mood symptoms better. Um, But as you mentioned, the psychological impact of GSM cannot be underestimated, and it impacts women's quality of life and their relationships with their partners. So, again, it's important for women to speak up and say when they're having a problem. That's the physician
2: saying that it should not be underestimated. And I sincerely and very specifically want to say to any woman who is listening right now, if you feel like this is driving you crazy, trust me, it'll be okay. You just have to say something.
3: Well, and, and there have been multiple surveys that have proven this over and over and over again. Vaginal dryness is a huge issue for women, for their partners, for their sex lives, for their relationships, and it's addressable. It's a, it's a treatable issue.
1: You know, that's all very good to know. And so uh, in addition, you wrote this excellent article on genitourinary syndrome of menopause, but you also wrote a book, a whole book on menopause. Tell us about that. <laughs>
3: Oh, it's the Mayo Clinic Menopause Solution. It was uh, published last year, and it's still available where books are sold. But we we basically wrote it as a reference for women because we couldn't find anything that was reputable out there, so we came up with one.
2: You know, maybe not a gift to give to your special woman for (laughs) Christmas or a holiday, but something you could get for
3: yourself, right? Absolutely. Put that under the tree, huh? Treat yourself to it. Absolutely. It's
1: a great resource. All right, Dr. Stephanie Fabian, director of the Mayo Clinic Office. Office of Women's Health, talking about genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thanks for having
2: me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the latest update to blood pressure guidelines.
1: And later on in the program, how to avoid holiday household hazards.
2: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. There is a physical reason why you should stop eating three hours before bedtime, says Mayo Clinic Dr. Joseph Murray.
1: Our digestion is meant to be carried out in a more upright position.
0: That's why late-night snacks can be a recipe for reflux. You
1: fill your stomach with food, it starts producing a lot of acid. Now you've got a big bag full of food and acid. That's sitting there. You go lay down and you no longer have gravity to keep that food and acid down. Comes up your esophagus giving you reflux.
0: Dr. Murray says some foods are more likely than others to contribute to it. High fat foods
1: because they'll sit in your stomach much, much longer.
0: So avoid high fat foods, tomato based items, spices, chocolate and onions. And alcohol may also cause heartburn. And even if you avoid these heartburn triggers, remember
1: Digestion is not meant to be going on during our sleep, it's meant to be going on while we're awake. Eating right before bed is not a good idea.
0: And moving on, what's the difference between a bacterial infection and a viral infection? As you might think, bacterial infections are caused by bacteria, and viral infections are caused by viruses. Maybe the most important distinction between bacteria and viruses is that antibiotic drugs usually kill bacteria, but they aren't effective against viruses. Bacteria are everywhere, and most bacteria cause no harm to people— but there are exceptions, such as strep throat, tuberculosis, and urinary tract infections. Antibiotics can knock out these infections, but inappropriate use of antibiotics has helped create bacterial diseases that are resistant to treatment with different types of antibiotic medications. Now, diseases caused by viruses include chickenpox, AIDS, and common colds. In some cases, it may be difficult to figure out whether a bacterium or a virus is causing your symptoms. Many ailments, such as pneumonia, meningitis, and diarrhea, can be caused by either bacteria or viruses. So talk to your healthcare provider. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives,
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Last month, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association announced new blood pressure guidelines again. <laughs> and that will significantly increase the number of Americans who, according to the new numbers, have blood pressure that's too high. The committee that drafted the new guidelines substantially lowered the blood pressure range of what is now considered
2: normal. 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 Or normal. (laughs) That means that people whose blood pressure used to be considered pre-hypertension or high normal will now be considered elevated blood pressure or stage one hypertension. This change will affect more than 30 million Americans. So why the new guidelines and what does it mean? Here to discuss the new guidelines is Mayo Clinic nephrologist Dr. Sandra Taylor. Dr. Taylor is also a member of the writing committee that drafted the new guidelines. Welcome to the program, Dr. Taylor. It's nice to meet you.
4: Thank you. It's nice
2: to be here.
1: So you've pretty much changed the whole definition of what is high blood pressure
4: yes this is a, a big deal this guideline um, it's the first guideline in 14 years uh, on a national level that has endorsement from multiple different professional organizations that are expert include experts in high blood pressure so it's a big deal and um, it's Almost, you could say overdue. You were, you're kind of
1: on a, on the hot seat, though, aren't you? I mean, you were on the committee that that wrote the new guidelines. Has, has there been some pushback? Has there been some controversy about the new guidelines?
4: Well, I think it's early. Um, the The comments that I hear from people around me are, "Oh, I better watch my blood pressure a little more. Maybe, you know, this is something important that I need to pay attention to." Um, I've had uh, patients that I see push back a little bit when I say that uh, a normal blood pressure is you know less than 120 and that if they have blood pressure above 130, that is appropriate to be treated. So I think that um, patients, um, the public, will need to understand what this is about, and it may take a little time to get used to.
2: Well, it also just gets it on people's radar about blood pressure. that's a good conversation to have. So what exactly, or what causes high blood pressure? Yeah, um,
4: first of all, I don't think we totally know. Mm. High blood pressure uh, uh, is more likely as you age, Um, and it occurs with age in societies that eat a high-salt diet. So presumably there's some relationship between sodium or salt intake and stiffening blood vessels that causes high blood pressure. It tends to run in families, but even if you don't have it in your family, if you live long enough, you're likely to develop high blood pressure. So you could almost consider it um, a rite of passage, something, that is very common with age.
1: It, it's uh, a little bit hard to understand that, that there are so now, uh, there are not that many of us who are actually spared the diagnosis of having high blood pressure. I mean, the new statistics show that under the, the new guidelines, more than 100 million people, that's more than 45% of American adults, have high blood pressure.
4: Right. And well, if you. How can it be? Well, actually, if you look at adults over 65, you'd probably, it would be about 90%. Yeah. So it has to do with age. So uh, in 20-year-olds, it's not very common. In 30, a little more, 40s, 50s, et cetera. So that overall 45% is really skewed toward uh, older age. Individuals,
1: Just like it took us a long time to figure out that smoking not only caused lung cancer, but also caused cardiovascular disease. Has it taken us a long time to figure out that there was such a strong relationship between high blood pressure and kidney disease, heart disease, stroke, etc.? I mean, these guidelines have come down and down and down over the years.
4: Right. They started back in the 1960s, 1970s, but there were there were trials even back then. The VA Cooperative Study is a, a famous landmark study. It was one of the first studies where they treated people with high blood pressure and started to prevent cardiovascular disease. Now, at that time, it was based on diastolic blood pressure, the lower blood pressure number, and these were uh, men with very high, Blood pressure, who were treated, and the results were dramatic. The number of people who had, you know, even fatal events was markedly reduced
2: with blood pressure treatment. Which one of those numbers is the more important one, the upper one or the lower one, or explain what those mean? That's a very good question. So uh,
4: systolic blood pressure is the blood pressure when the heart beats. That's the upper number when you get a reading. Diastolic blood pressure is the pressure between beats when the heart rests, So, and that's the lower number. Initially, um, it was thought that diastolic blood pressure was the most important one. When your and, heart is resting. Yeah, yeah. when mm-hmm. your heart is resting. And the early studies and all of the recommendations were based on the diastolic blood pressure. But over the years, we found that actually systolic blood pressure, the upper number, correlates with risk. Risk for heart disease, risk for stroke, risk mm. for kidney disease, much more so. And so now... Uh, uh, for many years, but, but more so in recent years, the focus has been on systolic, the upper number.
1: So tell us about the the, uh, the new guidelines and how you're going to help patients get their blood pressure lower. Will it require a lot more, more people to be on uh, blood, blood pressure medication, or are you going to advocate more for lifestyle change?
4: So... Um, It may sound a little complicated. I'll I'll try to explain this very simply. So, uh, Tracy, you talked about that um, normal is less than 120 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. This elevated range is 120 to 129 systolic. And so in that range, um, we would just tell people to, you know, keep an eye on it and, and limit their salt, try to keep their weight down, sort of lifestyle practices, but it's, it doesn't require treatment. The, the big change is, um, when you get to a systolic pressure of 130 to 139 or a diastolic pressure of 80 to 89. Now that's going to be called stage one hypertension. And in that situation, everybody would be advised to follow, to change lifestyle practices, to follow lifestyle um, modifications that would lower your overall cardiovascular risk, and lower your risk uh, or lower your blood pressure, actually. For a subgroup of those people, if they already have heart disease, already have had a stroke or heart failure, um, if they're diabetic, if they have kidney disease, those individuals we would start on medication as well as lifestyle practices at 130 or higher. So that's a change.
2: What are the lifestyle changes that people can make starting right now?
4: First of all is weight loss. Get your weight down to a normal body weight. Maybe not just under obese would be a good starting goal. Um, second, limit your salt intake. That would be sodium. We need to read the labels to do that. Third, regular exercise. Aerobic or resistance training 90 to 150 minutes a week. Fourth, limit alcohol moderation, so no more than two drinks a day for men, one drink a day for women.
1: And I suppose it goes without saying, no smoking. No smoking. You have certainly uh, emphasized the fact that high blood pressure is extremely important. And the other important thing we ought to tell our listeners is you got to go in and get it checked because you yeah. can't tell what it is. It's an asymptomatic condition. They used to call it the silent killer. Maybe they still do. Still do. Thanks so much for updating us on the guidelines. Dr. Sandra Taylor, nephrologist at the Mayo Clinic, kidney specialist. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. We're gonna take a short break when we come back. Holiday household hazards, how to avoid a trip to the ER.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Doctor Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Dr. You can Shives. almost
1: can that, couldn't you? <laughs>
2: We're not Oh, do never that. mind. <laughs> that was last year. We <laughs> learned from our mistake. The holidays mean family and friends, decorations, lights, candles. Some of us even bring a real tree into our home.
1: Well, with all these trappings at the holidays, they're all intended to bring joy. They can, unfortunately, present some hazards as well.
2: I can see it. Adults on ladders, children with access to cords and candles, Pretty much anything can become hazardous.
1: Well, here with tips for staying safe this holiday season is emergency medicine physician, Dr. Luke Wood. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Wood. Nice to see you. Happy
5: holidays. Thank you. It's good to be here again.
2: <laughs> I know you don't like talking about all the things that can go wrong when everybody gets together, but that is what happens when you go into the emergency department.
5: Unfortunately, that's the case, yeah. I'm, it, usually when you're seeing me, it's not necessarily a good thing.
2: What's the number one thing that uh, at this time of year show up? people show up in the emergency Department.
5: You know, I don't know if there's any number one thing. There's certainly things during the winter that we see a lot more of um, in the emergency department than other times of the year. Um, one thing that we'll see a little bit more of uh, during during the typical holiday season is uh, we see a little bit more chest pain. Um, and there's probably a variety of reasons for that. Uh, one, people aren't necessarily watching what they're eating necessarily as much. And um, people are also sometimes exerting themselves a little bit more, especially if we get a nice little snowstorm and they got to clear out the driveway. Way.
2: Are you listening, Florida? <laughs> it can happen. Yeah,
5: that's Consider right. yourself lucky.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, there is such a thing as, as some people have called it the holiday heart syndrome. Um, so tell us. You get chest pain whether you're shoveling snow or whatever. You overindulge, maybe you had a little bit too much alcohol, but you get this chest pain. What should you do? Tell us the
4: steps.
5: Well, you know, I, I think the one thing, if if I can convey one piece of information for listeners, is that any type of exertional chest pain really kind of concerns us. Um, so if people are you know are, are used to walking, say two miles a morning or something along those lines, and they start to notice that they're either developing some chest tightness while they're exerting themselves, or they're uh, feeling more short of breath than they typically would be, those are all Reasons to to come into the emergency department and be evaluated. Of course, during the winter, you know uh, shoveling is is a pretty exertional exercise, um, and so it's not at all uncommon that we see people um, who develop this chest tightness, maybe some, with some radiation into the shoulders or down the arms. Um, that, uh, that, that brings them to the emergency department while they're, while they're shoveling. Um, and that certainly catches my attention as an emergency physician. Um, and so, you know, um, really most types of chest pain, but especially any type of chest pain with exertion really warrants, uh, a, an emergency evaluation. And then, you know, oftentimes what we'll ask about is associated symptoms. So if people are also feeling, you know, nauseated or sweating with this, that's really indicative that this could be some type of cardiac process and they gotta, they got to get into the emergency department uh, sooner rather than later to be evaluated.
1: Usually best to call 911. And uh, is the advice still to choose some aspirin?
5: It is, yeah. Uh, despite all of our advances in medicine up to the year 2017, um, aspirin is uh, still uh, a great medication for, uh, for acute coronary syndrome.
2: I was going to guess that carbon monoxide poisoning might be one of the things that you see most often this time of year.
5: So we certainly see a lot more carbon monoxide poisoning this time of year. Um, certainly the listeners in Florida and Arizona, Probably aren't as affected by this.
2: Well, but you know what? They uh, during hurricane season when they have to use generators, that's when you hear them, unfortunately, having prob- problems with it.
5: Absolutely, yeah. And um, here in Minnesota, we see um, a bit more carbon monoxide poisoning because um, you know uh, carbon monoxide fo- poisoning comes in kind of two different forms. Um, one is from people being exposed to uh, carbon monoxide in the setting of a house fire or some type of combustible fire. The other type of carbon monoxide poisoning is kind of uh, non-fire related. And so you see that with uh, generators um, or if, uh, you know, a vehicle or some type of uh, gas burning appliance is burning in a closed space.
1: How does someone suspect
5: that they might have carbon monoxide poisoning? Good question. So, you know, the development of a headache um, is usually the first symptom of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. And then we'll also oftentimes see this kind of in clusters where, you know, if there's six people in the same home with an elevated carbon monoxide level, then they'll all come in at the same time with similar symptoms. Typically speaking, what we see first is a headache, oftentimes some nausea or confusion. Uh, when people's carbon monoxide level builds up to a critical level, they oftentimes will lose consciousness and that's an extremely dangerous situation because then they can't uh you know get help on their own As long as we're
1: talking about poisoning, let's talk about alcohol poisoning. Mm -hmm. And I suspect you see it year-round, particularly in the summer and around the holidays. What do you do about that? Um, Particularly, well, any person. It can happen to somebody of any age. How do you handle that problem?
5: Oftentimes, it's just supportive measures, unfortunately. Um, And when people um, have drank so much that um, they're not able to protect their airway, oftentimes we're having to intubate these people, put an endotracheal tube um, to do the breathing for them, um, and basically. Support them while their body metabolizes that alcohol, but it can be a really big deal. So they can't—they're so drunk they can't breathe, and you have to put a tube down their down their windpipe. They can breathe, but but the combination of them (laughs) uh, of them vomiting, um, which is you know oftentimes what we see with with uh, alcohol poisoning, um, that's a situation where they're at high risk for aspirating that vomit, which I'm sure is everyone's uh, on everyone's Christmas wish list. Um, And so oftentimes we have to intubate people to kind of support them through those rough times.
1: All right, now we. uh, sometimes that, that they pumped her stomach or they pumped his stomach. What does that mean? And do you actually do that? Uh,
5: you know, I haven't really done that at all. Um, you know, I, I hear that as well, but um, that's really not something that we're doing routinely in the emergency department. It's oftentimes, like I said, supportive measures, and uh, unfortunately, the body has to do most of the dirty work um, in the setting of a uh, acute uh, alcohol poisoning.
1: All right, Sorry, one more quick question about that. Uh, when I was a medical student, you would always hear about EPICAC, mm. and you would give somebody epic i think uh, it was by mouth and it would make people vomit you Mm -hmm. don't do that no no
5: uh for for exactly that risk of aspiration like i was talking about earlier
1: meaning when you vomit the the stuff ends up going down your windpipe and can make causing inflammation infection in the lungs correct
2: okay what else do you want folks to know about this time of year
5: well, um, unfortunately, this year um, we, we see a spike in house fires, um, and uh, sometimes that has to do with the Christmas tree that people have hung on their house. Um, and so, uh, you know, when, with respect to uh, safe use of a Christmas tree, um, it's good to make sure that that tree is, is very well watered, that it's away from any heating vents, at least three feet or so. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and then there's very common sense things. If you're putting lights on your trees, don't put on lights that have exposed wire or that are, you know, uh, that have obvious uh, defective wiring to it. Um, And so, it's really important before you throw the uh, the lights on the tree to make sure that uh, everything's intact there. And what about for
2: kids? What are one of the most dangerous? uh, What? What happens for children at this time of year that can be dangerous?
5: Um, All sorts of things, but you know, this time of year we uh, oftentimes people have a heavy Christmas tree in the corner of their living room. Um, You don't want the little toddlers tugging on the lower branches. You want to have a really good um, or a uh, a, tr- uh, a Christmas tree stand that is kind of uh, uh, appropriate for your size Christmas tree because you can imagine if you get too small of a stand and you get a big 12-foot Christmas tree, that's an unstable situation. Um, also, this time of year, there's a lot of electrical wiring um, on the floors, and so it's good to maybe uh, you know tuck that underneath rugs or make sure it's uh, out of reach of, of little youngsters so they can't uh, be dabbling with it.
1: All right. Well, thanks for helping us all make this a safe holiday season. Dr. Luke Wood. Emergency medicine physician, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays. And
2: that's our program for this week. For more
1: information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
2: Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.